Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Archbishop, um, you're three and a half years here in Ireland uh, as of now. Um, the Ireland you come into in terms of relations with the Vatican were pretty appalling. I mean, um, it's doubtful that this state was uh, ever in a worse situation in terms of the strains vis-a-vis the Vatican in Ireland. Uh, indeed, it could be said that the relations between the Irish Catholics, uh, Catholics in general and Rome were never at such a low as in the end of uh, 2011 beginning of 2012. It must have been a formidable environment to come into as a nuncio. No, it certainly was, uh, Patsy. Um, it, was, it, was a, it was a very difficult period. Um, of that, there is no doubt. And um, of course, when I was asked to be the nuncio uh, to Ireland, I was very, very surprised by that request by the Holy Father. Um, for a number of reasons, uh, one being the fact that I had not served in diplomacy, and the other being, as you mentioned, um, the, the very strained relations between the Holy See and Ireland at that point in time, which would be now four years ago. So it was a, uh, a time of, uh, of difficulty, of tension, but of course, I, you know, I'm happy to say that thanks be to God, the situation has certainly improved. Um, Situations can always be further improved, but the situation has improved immensely, I think, in the last four years. Our embassy has reopened. I'm sure that's something that pleases you personally. Absolutely. I was delighted by that. That was really one of the most uh, happy and joyful occasions that I've had since I've been nuncio here in Ireland was the decision of the Irish government to reopen the, the residential embassy uh, in Rome and the appointment of a, a terrific, young, and incredibly competent ambassador in the person of Emma Madigan, who is uh, doing an amazing job in Rome and uh, is well-liked by everyone, including the Pope. She had that amazing moment in which she presented her letters of credential to Pope Francis and brought her young son and, of course, her husband, who's also a diplomat, uh, to the credential ceremony and absolutely charmed the Pope to no end. And so people are delighted with, uh, with Emma Madigan and her work as the ambassador of Ireland uh, in Rome. So that's been incredibly positive and makes me very, very happy. Since you came here um, almost uniquely where nuncios are concerned, you've replaced quite a lot of bishops, mainly men who retired for age, re age reasons, and 10 so far, probably five more whenever. There are five vacancies currently. Um, yeah, or actually five. I mean, not really, I think there's only really one, uh, one vacancy at the moment. Oh, vacancy, yeah. vacancy, and since there's no bishop there. The other ones are over, over 75 and waiting to be waiting for a change, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, the, the appointments have been uh, of a different nature to what was the case in the past, and mostly all of them, in fact, to date, have not been priests in the diocese right. to which they've been appointed, number one. Uh, some of them have been quite conservative. One of them is, in fact, the first Opus Dei bishop in Ireland. Uh, and others are from more of a pastoral than an academic background. So the, there is a shift in the, uh, the criteria that would appear to be uh, in choosing men for these new roles. That's, a, that's an excellent question. I mean, I don't know if there's been a shift in the criteria, 
or the application of the criteria, you know, my application of the criteria that I receive from Pope Francis and before that from Pope Benedict. Um, honestly, the criteria, the criteria haven't changed, but maybe um, the results that uh, arrive or that, that are, that, that follow upon those criteria may be somewhat different, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not totally convinced that there's a huge difference between the bishops that have been appointed uh, since I've arrived and the ones that were appointed uh, before me. I, 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 now, certainly, um, yeah, you make the very good point about the bishops coming from outside the diocese. And that is, of course, um, something that I would say, first of all, uh, that is not an absolute rule written in stone at all. It's a question always of assessing the diocese that needs a bishop talking to the priests uh, and the lay people, doing a, a very widespread consultation, and on the basis of that, with the people in Rome, kind of assessing what's best for that diocese. Now, I think it's fair to say that in the Church Universal, generally in the last probably 10 or 15 years, the tendency has been to appoint new bishops from outside dioceses. And that's not simply true for Ireland. I mean, look for, if you look at Great Britain, for example, today, um, very, very few of the bishops in Great Britain today would be priests of the diocese where they're bishop. I think you'd have to look, but I think very few. Um, so what's, what, what the criterion that's being applied in Ireland is no different from the criterion that's being applied in France, in Great Britain, in the United States, um, in Brazil. It's, it's the same criteria. So it'd be a mistake to think that Ireland is somehow different with respect to the appointment of, of men who are not priests of the diocese to the diocese than in, in other countries. It's, it's a uniform policy of the Holy See throughout uh, the world. But again, I also want to emphasize, so not to cause confusione, that it's not something written in stone. And I think it's very, very possible that during my time before, you know, my time sadly ends in, in Ireland, that we'll have a bishop appointed from his diocese, uh, a priest from the diocese appointed as bishop. It's very possible. It's very possible. The Association of Catholic Priests has been critical of the manner of some of these appointments and about what they call the lack of co consultation. In the past, priests in the diocese were asked to nominate three names that would be cons Absolutely. consultation. Absolutely. And um, uh, it would appear from what they say that they, those recommendations are not being followed through on. I mean, it would appear by implication that they do recommend men from their own diocese for appointments to the diocese. Well, naturally, I mean, the consultation is, as you said, there's, there's 10 dioceses, I believe, that have received new bishops since I arrived, uh, appointed either by Pope Benedict, very few actually, and mostly by Pope Francis. Um, and um, the consultation is, is widespread throughout Ireland. And obviously, if you consult priests from any diocese, the priests that they know and that, that, that they're able to comment upon are priests that are from their diocese. You know? uh, so the, when a consultation takes place in a diocese, um, on that level, a lot of the names that emerge are priests from that diocese. But that's because the priests who are being consulted are from the diocese, and these are the men that they know. So that's, that, that shouldn't be surprising to anyone. But there's, there's more to the consultations than simply that. You know, the bishops of Ireland give, not just in Ireland, but in every country, give to the nuncio every year or two years a list of candidates for the episcopate, the so-called provincial list. Each province produces a list of candidates, and those are given to the bishop. So, or sorry, to the, to the nuncio, excuse me. So you have 
kind of two levels, and, and that, you have, you have a number of different levels of consultation going on. But um, yeah, so a, a lot of names surface. Um, the ones, not to repeat myself, but the ones from, from priests of the diocese generally would be priests that they know from their own diocese, generally, but not always. What then are the criteria uh, in the selection of men for these posts? What are the main criteria you seek, or the nuncio uh, Rome seeks, or the, the congregation of, uh, of bishops seeks in Rome, for uh, uh, the type of person you want now to run a diocese? Interesting. I, I could respond with the words of Pope Francis, you know, if someone has a smell of the sheep, you know. But what does the smell of the sheep entail? It's someone, first of all, who will be a good father, pastor, brother to his priests, um, with everything that implies. You know, it's like saying, "What makes a good father of a family?" You know, um, it's someone who needs to be able to preach relatively well and communicate the beauty of the Catholic faith to his people. It's someone also who needs to be able to administer relatively well. And um, because as you would well know, a, a lot of the time of bishops is spent in the administration of the diocese and purely technical administration questions. And the bishop needs to have some cap uh, capability in that. He needs to be a man of prayer so that what he is um, giving to his people, what he's transmitting to his people comes from the closeness that uh, with Christ that comes from a life of prayer. And, um, and finally, he needs to be close to his people in the sense of someone who encounters his people, um, who knows his people, who's not afraid to go out of the doors of his bishop's house and meet his people, follow his people, walk with his people. So, you know, all of these things go into the mix. Obviously, he needs to be someone who, who, who loves the Catholic faith, who teaches the Catholic faith, who is enthusiastic about the Catholic faith. But um, all of these elements go together. And the amount of documentation that goes to Rome on every candidate would be in, in the neighborhood of, you know, uh, probably 35 to 70 pages of consultation, of analysis, of opinions. Um, which then the Congregation for Bishops and, and then uh, Pope Francis himself goes through and decides on who, they, who, who the Pope will cho choose as bishop. Because as you know, the Nuncio sends three names to Rome. Um, and generally from those three names, the, uh, Pope Francis chooses a bishop. But if Pope Francis were unhappy with the three names, he could ask the Nuncio to do it again, do the, do the, do the, in, the whole investigation again, do the turna again. Um, been suggestions that there have been refusals uh, on the part of some men who have been offered diocese. Is that true? Yeah, I would not be able to uh, confirm or deny that because when the Pope appoints someone, asks someone to be a bishop, it's uh, a very personal invitation by Pope Francis to a man. And it is conceivable that the man who the Pope has chosen on the basis of the work that's been done here by me and by the Congregation for Bishop, it's conceivable that he feels, whether rightly or wrongly, that he's incapable of doing the job and, and, and says no. But I cannot say whether, um, because it's a private, personal, um, and indeed uh, confidential question that the Pope asks to men, that I can't comment on whether or not 
men have said yes or no. If such people do exist, would, would they be approached again as Pope Francis himself was? Yeah, it's possible, sure. Yeah, very possible. They'd be pushed again later on. Yeah. The church yeah. in Ireland today is in a critical state, personnel-wise particularly. The average age of the Irish priest is 63, that is the serving the secular priest. Uh, regional uh, religious priest is even higher, about 73. Um, in this diocese, Dublin Irish Diocese, they'll have less than one priest per parish in five years' time. Yeah. Um, and yet, on the part of some clergy, particularly the Association of Catholic Priests, there's a sense that this issue has not been addressed. Well, it's certainly being addressed. It's, it, it's certainly being addressed. The question is, how is it being addressed? You know, um, every bishop at every at every moment of every day is concerned about this issue, uh, as it becomes more difficult to find priests to go to parishes. So, um, the bishops, I, I, I believe, are very obviously incredibly well aware of this problem. As an uncio, how do you see it? I, I mean, it is, it's, it's a huge problem. It's a big problem. We need um, more, uh, more vocations to the priesthood. Uh, we need uh, young men to say yes to Christ, to enter the seminary at Maynooth or in the Irish College, and to be ordained. We have a, a tremendous need uh, for priests. It's only now, in 2015, I believe, that we're beginning to feel the lack of priests because we have a large, as you would know better than I, even from the, from the age profile, we have a large number of priests, um, w wonderful men in their 70s, and some in their 80s who are still working. And it'd be interesting to know how many priests in their 70s and 80s are actually fully active in Ireland. That's a good number, but that, of course, means that within five or seven years, that entire segment, which is a considerable number, will, will, will disappear. So we're beginning now to see this, this crisis in numbers, um, which um, will, uh, in the short term, not get better. When you arrived here, as we said earlier, this relations between the two states were critically poor, very, very bad. And in, and in fact, that was articulated by Artishuk in uh, July the 20th, uh, 2011, after the publication of the Cloyne Report, when he, he pronounced a scathing judgment on the Vatican and its lack of cooperation with the various commissions, particularly the two Murphy commissions. Um, how are relations now between the establishment here and the, the Holy See? How would you characterize them? I, I think that, 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 that they're quite good and immensely improved from four years ago. Um, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the Taoiseach himself was in Rome um, for was it the uh, inauguration of Pope Francis or the, or the canonization of John Paul? And um, in an informal way, invited Pope Francis to Ireland. The Taoiseach himself did that in one of those two contexts. You'd have to check which one it was. Um, so I, I think that, that the, the situation between the government of Ireland and the Holy See has, uh, has improved immensely uh, in, in, these, in these years. There was a feeling back then uh, that the Vatican didn't acknowledge its role in what happened in Ireland. That um, whereas in Pope, Pope Benedict in his letter to the Irish Catholics in March 2012 was accurate in his assessment of how the church leadership in Ireland had failed the church and Irish Catholics to the extent that uh, not since the penal laws was the church in such a bad state in Ireland, I think was the line that was used in that particular letter. Um, but there was no indication in the letter that, that, that the Vatican played a role in how the Irish church leadership did deal with the crisis. For instance, they were frustrated by Cardinal Hoyas as uh, Dean of the Congregation for Clergy in bringing in their, or getting the imprimatur, if you like, for their 1996 guidelines and again for their 2005 guidelines. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Car the bishops met him in Ross's Point in Sligo in 1998 and Cardinal Connell got so frustrated, apparently, 
according to on the record, the, he banged the table because they had decided they were going to report all allegations to the civil authorities and Cardinal Hoyles was not going to stand over that. Do you not think that he in particular played a role in tying the hands of the Irish church leadership in addressing the issue the way they should have? I think that, um, I think that all allegations of sexual abuse by members of the clergy need to be reported to civil authorities and that has always been the case. That's my, that's my, my opinion, my, my absolute conviction. There, there is no doubt that in the 90s there was an increasing awareness in Rome about the gravity, not only in Ireland, in fact it really didn't, be, the gravity probably began in other places first, the, the grave nature of the problem of sexual abuse by members of the clergy, of, of minors, um, there was a growing awareness in the years, in the 90s. I was in, of course, as you know, I was in Rome in those, in those years. I had the good fortune of not working on sexual abuse cases, but I was certainly aware of what was going on because I was in that, that environment. And, there was a, and I, it can only be described as a, a growing awareness of the gravity and, let's be honest, the, um, the, 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 the relatively large numbers of these cases that were occurring or had occurred throughout the world. And in that context of growing awareness, which also one could say has also been the experience in secular society, without a doubt, and perhaps has reacted slower than the Catholic Church has, but that's another question. In that question of growing awareness, there was also the question, there was obviously the question of how to deal with this. And in Rome, at, in the 90s, there, um, there was a question about whether the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith would deal with these cases or the Congregation for the Clergy would deal with these, these cases. And what you're reflecting would have been um, the statements coming from, at the time, the prefect of the Congregation for the Clergy. And then, as you know, the competence for these um, horrific cases ended up with the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And the situation was gradually um, brought under control in terms of procedures were established and um, the bishops who were dealing with cases of clerical sexual abuse began to feel, I believe, that their voices were being uh, heard in Rome and they were being supported in Rome when the confidence um, came to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. So that would be my response to that. I mean, Cardinal Hoyle's period up to 20, 2006, rather, was described by Irish bishops as a disaster uh, from their point of view. Uh, and that's on the record. Uh, Archbishop John Martin said that, that, that that was the view of Irish bishops of that period. Um, was there, uh, it would appear that uh, as Cardinal Rassio tried to get control of the matter with his letter uh, of 2001 to all bishops in the world when he asked them to refer all relevant cases of abuse to him for a decision as to wh whether it would be dealt with. At the, in that same year, Cardinal Hoyles wrote to this Bishop Pican in Bayeux, uh, uh, um, Lisieux in France, congratulating him for not cooperating with the civil authorities when it came to the investigation of a priest who was jailed for 18 years, such as the extent of his abuse, and Cardinal, or, or Bishop Pican got a three-month suspended sentence. He congratulated him in the name of Pope John Paul. Well, so there would appear to be a clash in the Vatican itself as to how these, this issue was to be addressed between uh, Cardinal Ratzinger on the one hand and Cardinal Hoyas on the other. There was certainly a difference of approach. Yeah, right. 
Um, Carl Rasser tried to get grips with it in 2001. He also tried to get grips with the Massiel case, the founder of the Legionaries of Christ in the late 1990s. He initiated an inquiry there in 1998, which was stopped for reasons that were never explained in 1999. Then he became Pope and he removed him from ministry. What happened in 1999 to, to stop that inquiry? You know, I, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Patsy, I never worked on, um, I should also say in parentheses, that the work, I worked for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith for basically 10 years from, or no, excuse me, from, for 17 years, from 1994 to 2011. I worked, um, in the doctrinal section uh, for, for that period. And um, so I never was involved in, directly in these cases. So um, the, the trajectory of the investigation of, of, um, of, the, uh, of Maciel, um, I really would not have firsthand knowledge of that. So I don't know. But part of it, I think, would have been the, the problem of, uh, uh, of gathering information um, from victims, um, and that was that would uh, uh, receiving information from victims, and overcoming the perception, which was widespread in Rome at the time, that Maciel was a um, a good and holy founder of a religious congregation and that the accusations against him were, uh, were calumny. So that obviously takes a while to overcome that, and that would play a part in, in the delay or the, uh, the, the, the relatively long time it took between the, the arrival of the first allegations and definitive action by the Holy See. To come back to your doctrinal role in the CDF, um, some Irish priests have been in the uh, spotlight where the CDF is concerned, including people like Father Tony Flannery, Father Brian Darcy, Father Jerry Maloney, Father Sean Fagan, etc., because of liberal writings or liberal interpretations of church teaching on their part. They've been left somehow um, out on a, in a limb. I mean, it seemed, uh, certainly some of them were concerned that towards the end of Cardinal Lavada's period as prefect, that there had been an accommodation or agreement reached on both sides. And then when Cardinal Muller took over, the line became harder again. And, and so there's been no progress there. Well, uh, yeah, but I think these are all, I mean, what you're referring to, Patrick, you, uh, different cases. I, I don't think they all fall into that category. I think what you're describing is one case, I think. Well, there's one particular. Line. Yeah, I mean, I don't think all of them are, are, are like, I don't think, I don't think the, the, I think only that what you're saying, I think only, I think basically only it would apply to Tony Flattery, yeah. I think. Well, I mean, Father Maloney was also warned. I think he has to go through, or his writings have to go through a certain process as well as Father Darcy. Well, I think, yeah, although I think that, you know, uh, again, I should say that um, these, um, the, the, these cases, the only way to know exactly what's happening in these cases is either to talk to the religious superiors mm -hmm. of the men, or obviously the men themselves, or the Congregation of Doctrine of the Faith. The, the nunciature does not have direct or firsthand involvement in these. I mean, we are, I'm occasionally informed, I hear about these cases, but the nunciature has no direct involvement in them. So it's, so, you know, it, it'd be, it would be, it'd be foolish for me to, to comment on the details of these cases when I don't know the details of the cases. But having said that, I think what you're describing, I think only re would relate I, the uh, situation of 
of a pos of a, uh, of, a, of, uh, of an almost agreement having been forged with Cardinal Levada, and then that not going through under Cardinal um, Mueller, I believe, would only apply to the Tony Flannery, I believe. Yeah. Uh, again, and this is somewhat as an aside, but you, you, you refer to being involved with doctrinal end of the CDF. Um, Dominus Deus was a very controversial document uh, yeah. in 2000 uh, under Gary Ratzinger, and it caused grave offence, particularly for Protestants in this country, but I'm sure Protestants elsewhere, the description of them as not being uh, a proper church, yeah. that, that phrase. Were you involved in the drawing of that, of that document? I mean, um, I was certainly working in the doctrinal section when, when that document um, was produced. But um, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith works in, in a totally collegial fashion. So you have um, probably about 15 officials in the doctrinal section, about now more or less almost the same in the, in the disciplinary section, which would be the canonical section. So things are, are, are kind of done in a, in a collegial fashion. So everyone, uh, everyone there would have some idea what's, of what is happening. But the decisions and the responsibility for these things are taken by the superiors of the congregation. The, the staff work for the congregation, but are not even juridically the congregation. You know? So it's always a mistake. And that's, that's the reason why staff members in the Congregation of Doctrine of the Faith, like staff members in a, a New York City law firm, are not able to talk about the work that they're doing for the lawyers in the law firm or for, or for the, the work of the CDF. So I'm not able to speak about the work that I did, the specific cases, which many of them over 17 years that I was involved in, um, at the Congregation of Doctrine of Faith, having said all of that. Dominus Jesus would have been the, the work of lo a long process of consultation, which would have involved um, principally, the consultors of the congregation. If you look in the Anuario Pontificio, you'll see the, the congregation basically with the superiors, like the prefect, secretary, undersecretary, promoter of justice. Then you've got staff people like myself. Then you have the consultors. The consultors listed in the, in the in Anuario would be about 35 theologians from Rome who meet at the congregation. In my time, they were meeting about once or twice a month, once every two weeks working on some theological or doctrinal issue. It could be a problematic book of a theologian. It could be a document that would, would emerge from the Congregation of Doctrine of Faith. It could be a study of some moral question, whatever. A document like Dominus Jesus would have been the uh, joint uh, work of, of that consulta, of, that, of all the consultors with the superiors. That's basically how the document would have been produced. The whole question of, of the, the, the document um, tries to define from obviously the Catholic perspective the constituent natures of what would be called in a strictly theological doctrinal sense, a church, mm. ecclesia, ecclesia. And um, we believe as Catholics that the Eucharist makes the church. So Eucharist, church, and episcopate are intimately related. You really can't basically have one for us without the other. The Eucharist, the valid Eucharist, the body of Jesus, his blood in the Eucharist, um, a, a, a validly ordained bishop and validly ordained priests who 
in the name of Jesus, consecrate the Eucharist with the people of God, constitutes the church. So you have that kind of triangle of, of a valid episcopate, Eucharist, and church. So um, the, the, the document was trying to say, I believe, that where one of those elements is not lacking um, in a technical sense, and only in a technical sense, um, where one of those elements is lacking, only in a technical sense, and I underline only in a technical sense, in a Catholic doctrinal sense, strictly speaking, um, uh, you should speak of an ecclesial community and not a church. So for example, the Orthodox churches you know, um, would be considered by the Catholic church to be, to be sister churches because they have the Eucharist, they have a valid episcopate, priests who, and of course Protestant churches, most of them uh, wouldn't, or Protestant ecclesial communities, wouldn't believe the same thing about the Eucharist that we believe anyway. Exactly, it'd be a different, different belief about the Eucharist. So it was, it was you know, it was an attempt to, uh, to uh, give a very a doctrinal, scientific definition of the church. And not to call into question the beauty and um, the incredible elements of sanctification that are found in the Protestant churches. Because you worked in the CDF and because you worked so closely with Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, you would be perceived to be, therefore, much more of a Benedict man than a Francis man. What would you say to, the, to the, that observation? Gosh, you listen, I would say, I, I, it's, it's, uh, I was ordained to the priesthood. I was sent to a parish in the Bronx in 1989, and uh, I was very, very happy there. Um, and uh, then I was sent to Rome uh, for studies, and I ended up working in the, in, in the uh, Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. For most of my priesthood and episcopal, well, most of my priesthood, not my episcopate, the Pope was John Paul II, um, who's now a canonized saint. He was John Paul II was incredibly influential in my way of thinking. Um, I found him an incredibly attractive person. Um, you know, his love of, of the outdoors, his love for sports, his love of travel, his enthusiasm, his doctrinal solidity, his joy was incredibly attractive to me and remains incredibly attractive to me. Um, I worked very closely for Pope Benedict when he was Cardinal Ratzinger for 10 years, extremely closely between 1994 and when he was elected Pope in 2005. I continued to work, with the, work for him after 2005, obviously, but not so closely because he was in the Apostolic Palace and I was still in the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith. Um, I, I love Pope Benedict. I, I visit him when I go to Rome. I, I admire him with all my heart. I've been very, very influenced by, by him. Um, and um, yeah, um, I, I feel very, very close to him. I think that on a, on a, maybe on a personality level, I perhaps would be maybe a little more in tune with um, St. John Paul II. Um, Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, is, is, is a saintly, scholarly, um, radiantly holy man with an incredible intellect um, and a great academic ability. And then there's, of course, Pope Francis. And, um, you know, you have three, these three popes who are kind of like three points on a triangle with different characteristics. I've met um, Pope Francis now several times. I've had the opportunity to have long conversations, just the two of us. 
Um, and it, for me, it's an immense honor to, to, to be his nuncio, to, to, to work for him. Um, I, I love his openness um, to, the, to the world and, and the idea of opening the church. I did a word search the other day in um, Evangelii Gaudium, his document, his first major document. It's a post-apostolic uh, uh, exhortation, I believe. You do a word search on the word open. How often open the church, physically open the churches, open the doors, physically open the doors, leave them open. You know, open the confessionals so that people come to confession, open the church. And that, um, in some ways, there's a kind of a John Paul element in that. And I think, I find that so attractive. So for me, you know, in the end, for any bishop, you're trying to model yourself uh, on the person of Jesus, you know. Um, you know, uh, I, I don't see my, uh, I don't want, in a certain sense, I, I admire these three popes. I've had the joy of working for each of them. Um, and I resonate in different ways with all three of them. But in the end, I mean, there's only one, there's only one Lord, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. Your appointment here was uh, a big surprise, and I gather not least to yourself. Um, you don't come, or didn't come through the normal diplomatic training process in the Vatican itself. You were picked by a man who knew you very, very well, Pope Benedict. Why? I think because I spoke English and I have Irish connections. Um, the extent to which Pope Benedict was actually aware of my Irish connections when he nominated me, appointed me, I'm not 100% sure. The minute he did uh, ask me to do this, I responded saying, this is amazing because you know, of my eight great-grandparents, five were from Ireland. Um, but I think essentially, I think um, because uh, he knew me, and I think he believed rightly or wrongly that being an English speaker, being an American, coming from New York, um, I, I might have an, an affinity with the Irish people that would be helpful mm -hmm. at that time. Mm -hmm. Do you see, I mean, obviously it's not a matter for you entirely, but do you see your own future in, in this context as a nuncio, or do you see yourself serving a different role in the church? Well, Patsy, I hope that I stay in Ireland for a long, long time. Um, one of my predecessors, two of my predecessors were here for 20 years. Um, the first nuncio, Pascal Robinson, and uh, the famous Alibrandi from 69 to 89. It would, it would give me great joy to finish up my, my life as a priest and bishop as nuncio in Ireland. Um, probably unlikely that that, that that will happen. If I were, I, you know, I, I honestly I don't know what will happen. Um, I would love, I hope I stay here for a long time. Um, but the chances are probably, if I was to make a bet with you today, that probably they'll send me to another nunciature in another English-speaking country, probably um, at some point. There's always a chance I could be sent back to the United States, brought back as a bishop uh, in a diocese. There's also the chance that I could be brought back to Rome again um, into one of the offices. But I mean, uh, if I was to make a bet here on the 20th of August, 2015, I would guess that they'll send me to another nunciature. Uh, as an Irish-American, you have an unusual background in that you were born in, in a predominantly Jewish East Village in New York City itself, and your family moved upstate and the upstate again. Uh, and most people think it's, it's the brown factor that's Irish, but it's not the brown factor, no, it's no. the Murphy factor, right. your mother. Yeah. You talked about your five great-grandparents. Where were they from in Ireland? Um, let's see, one was, the, one was from Leitrim. Two were basically 
from the area around Gort um, in County Galway. However, speaking very precisely, each of them would have been on the Clare side of the border or near Gort. And then the fourth one, I don't really know where she came from actually, somewhere in Northern Ireland, somewhere in Northern Ireland. The, um, the kind of the Gort connection is probably, is the, is the closest one because when I arrived here in Ireland, I celebrated mass in Liz Varna, not for the matchmaking ceremonies, but um, it was a great joy. And I mentioned at that mass that my great-grandmother had come from that, near there. And literally by the end of the mass, people in the church and a wonderful sister of mercy named uh, Sister de Lourdes Fahi um, in Gort had basically figured out who my ancestors were. And this is a really a, be a beautiful story um, because my great grandmother, my grandmother's mother left a place outside of Gort right near the monastery of, of Kiltmachdua. I mean, in the shadow of the round tower of Kiltmachdua, you know, said goodbye to her mother and father, walked down the road and took the, took the boat and went to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Why she went to P Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania? I don't know, but she did and married the son of German immigrants in Pittsburgh. Her daughter, my grandmother, um, was a, a pioneering nurse in, in the Great War, in the First World War, and was in France with the American soldiers and, and the French and the English uh, as, as a nurse on the front lines in World War I. Uh, then went back to Pittsburgh after World War I, was invited back to Europe in 1924 to a conference on nursing in Helsinki. Went to the conference in, in Helsinki in 1925, going back to Pittsburgh, stops in Ireland and visits the place where her mother was from, um, near Kilmacdua, meets the family and goes back. That was in 1925. In 1957, my father with his best friend from Notre Dame rented motor scooters in Milan and went to Ireland with these motor scooters, tried to find the place where his grandmother was born, where his mother had visited, and couldn't find it. No connect. Con so then I arrived in 2012, and because of Sister de Lourdes Fahi in, in Gort, I find uh, this, the, the, the family, the, 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 the relatives. I meet them, and one of the eldest ones tells me how she remembers bicycling into Gort as a girl to receive packages from Mrs. Brown in Pittsburgh. So this contact that had been lost since 1925 was kind of reestablished when I arrived in 2012. And that's a huge joy for me. I see, I see. You have been, since you came here, uh, a very visible nuncio compared particularly to your two predecessors. I, I imagine that's deliberate. Absolutely. To put yourself about the country to meet the people. How have you found Ireland since you came here? I, I, I love Ireland. I mean, since I arrived, the minute I got off the plane um, in January of 2012, I've just been overwhelmed by the warmth of the welcome that I've received. Um, I feel very unworthy of that welcome, um, but it's been kind of a universal embrace, really, by, by people here in Ireland, um, north and south, east and west, priests and religious and lay people. So it, it's, been, it's been wonderful. And I think given the, the difficulties that existed in 2011, I thought it was important for me to, Pope Francis wasn't Pope then, but to do <laughs> what he has subsequently said, is to go out, to open up the Nunziature, to get out and to, and to see people, to, 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 to ride the bus in Dublin, uh, to go to parishes, to schools, 
to kindergartens, to old folks' homes, and, and, to, and to engage. Do you think your two predecessors should have cooperated with the Muslim Commission, or should the Vatican itself, and should rather the Vatican itself? I think that those questions um, are questions that are dealt with very precisely in international law. And um, every state with bilateral diplomatic relations um, is required to follow the prescriptions of international law on these questions. And I believe that the Holy See um, has, at that time, was following what international law required in those cases. What about the perception that they were hiding behind protocols? Um, in, in, in not cooperating with, because what the commission was seeking were documentation, was documentation referred to Rome after the 2001 letter, particularly from Pope uh, or Cardinal Ratzinger then, uh, to do with the Dublin employment. The difficulty, uh, Patsy, with that is uh, these, were all, these are decisions um, made on the basis of international law uh, before I arrived, about which I had no knowledge, and, and, and now I, I could only answer those questions really by going and studying all the documentation. But I'm, I think that um, I think that the Holy See, as a as a uh, as a as a uh, an international entity in, in in communication or in in bilateral relations with other states, like every state. Um, is obliged to follow uh, international law and seeks always to do so. Um, we talked about the Irish Church in general terms there, the, the personnel issue where the priests are concerned, but what is your appraisal generally of the health of the Irish Church and the faith of the Irish people? Um, I, I'm very, very positive and, uh, and, and uh, affirmative of the faith of the Irish people. I think it's safe to say that there are few countries in Europe, there's probably no country, maybe one or two countries in Europe where the practice of the faith is as high as it is in Ireland today. There is obviously a difference, and it's between the rural situation and the urban situation. There's a difference between young people and elderly people. Um, and that's, uh, that's, simply, that's simply a case, there's simply a fact. But I think that the faith is the Catholic faith is very much alive in Ireland, um, and I think people realize that life um, without faith, life without the sacraments, um, life without that closeness and relationship with Christ and His Church and Our Lady is somehow lacking. I think there's a deep spiritual a, a, a kind of an innate spirituality in Irish people that for, for, for 15 centuries has been nourished by their Catholic faith um, in, in large part. And that story continues now. I think if you look at those 15 centuries, there would be periods in which the practice of the faith was higher or lower, periods in which there were fewer, or more, or fewer, voca fewer vocations of the priesthood and religious life and more. But the faith continues, and I believe it continues now. Um, the, the story of Irish Catholicism has not finished. It continues and will continue. I'm totally convinced of that. 
In your address in Notre Dame earlier this year, you, you advised Irish Catholics to avoid becoming a caricature. And I think this is in the context of legislation and what stances they take publicly or otherwise uh, on legislation. In the, at the time we were talking about the, I, well, I'm not sure if you were, but it was in the lead in uh, prior to the marriage equality referendum, which took place in May. Um, uh, what did you mean by that? Um, I'd have to go back and see exactly what I said, but I, I think... Um, You're talking about basically in a, in a, in a pluralist society. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I, I think what I, was, what, I would, what I would try to, what I was trying to express, and I have to, I'd really have to go back and look and, 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 and read it uh, again, or, but um, I think one of the most beautiful things about Pope Francis is his openness. Um, and the famous line, uh, many famous lines, but a famous line in, in his early interview with Civita Cattolica, in which he said that we ought not to be reduced as Catholics to the disjointed kind of obsessive um, proclamation of a few moral truths to the exclusion of everything else, that our moral teaching needs to be seen in the context of the entire Catholic faith. This is hugely important for Pope Francis. The moral teaching of the Catholic Church has to be seen in the context of Christian life in general. Um, and we, we need to avoid the caricature that the only thing the Catholic Church has to speak about is I don't know, abortion, uh, gay marriage, and, um, and contraception. I mean, um, and, and Pope Francis says that very, very clearly in that interview, and I, and I resonate very, very, very strongly with that. And I think when I say about caricature, the caricature would be that these Catholics, all they talk about are the, those three things. And we don't want to put ourselves in that, in that situation because um, the beauty of life uh, with Christ, the, the spirituality of the Catholic Church, the, the, the history of the Catholic Church, um, the life of grace, the aspiration to be found worthy of the life of the world to come, eternal life, that is what this is about. And only in that context do these individual and somewhat controversial or controverted moral points make sense. So that would be my point about the character, not be put into a little box where every time the Catholic Church apparently opens, uh, or the, the, the representative of the church opens their mouth, they're speaking about some controversial moral topic. Because those controversial moral topics, none of it makes sense um, taken in isolation. You did, I mean, it was, uh, you spoke very strongly uh, in uh, the sermon on New Year's Day. Uh, 2012, or 2013, 13, 2013, 2013 on abortion. On abortion, yeah. and it was noticeable you didn't comment at all publicly in the lead up to the recent referendum. Was that deliberate? Uh, or why did you speak so strongly about the abortion issue in the context of Great question, excellent question, excellent question. Um, and I spoke very strongly, or I spoke, I, I mentioned abortion in that talk because the, the talk was the World, Day, the World Day for Peace Mass at the first, uh, on, Jan, on January 1st, the first day of the year. And the, um, the reason for the Mass, the objective of that Mass, is to present the, the Pope's letter on the World Day of Peace. And in that letter, that year, there was a, a large um, paragraph on the question of right to life and abortion. So going through the letter, you, had, you couldn't not relate the letter. So that's why um, I spoke about abortion that day. Um, 
because that's what the letter that year was about. And, you know, I think that um, on, on a same-sex referendum, I think that the, the, the bishops of Ireland did a, 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 an excellent job in presenting in a compassionate and convincing way the teaching of the church on this issue. Um, it's not... It's not the it's not the role of, a, of an ambassador of, from any nation to, um, to 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 comment on matters of of um, political decision in the country where he's mm -hmm. where he's um, representing his own country. That's true for all ambassadors. So I, I think the bishops of Ireland uh, themselves um, were very very good on that. I think they conducted themselves with great with great compassion, with great dignity, with, uh, in, in the most convincing way possible. Yet Cardinal Parlin's reaction was very strong. He described the result as a defeat for humanity. Yeah, what he, I think you'd have to ask Carl pa Cardinal Parolin, uh, who's my boss, uh, about that. I believe he was speaking in, in Italiano, not in English, so he didn't actually say that. He would have said, I believe that it was a, a, a sconfitta per l'umanità, I think, per l'umanità, which I think what he would mean is that the, the church's teaching on marriage is a, a teaching that relates to human nature as well as to, to revelation. So he, what he was trying to, what he was, I believe what he was trying to express was this is not a defeat for the human race, but it was a defeat on the level of of nature, on the level of human nature and what we believe on the basis of natural law about marriage. You're saying essentially that what he meant was lost in translation. Um, translation is always an art, you know, um, and um, yeah, and, and, and uh, it's, it's always difficult to take something in one language and put it into another and make it understandable. Um, but you know, actually, you know, we. You would have to ask him exactly, but I, that, when I read his statement, that's what I thought. That's what I think he was what he was referring to. That Catholic Church's teaching on marriage is something. Obviously, it comes to us through, through revelation. We see it in, in in scripture from the beginning, but it's also something we believe is a, is a, is a truth from um, human nature, from natural law, from our humanness. So it was a, a defeat on the level of humanness. I think that's what he was saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the resignation of Pope Benedict took everybody by surprise. Did it take you by surprise? Um, I, I like to say that I was uh, somewhat shocked, but not completely surprised. Um, he, I think he gave some indications and during his pontificate that this was in his mind and the famous uh, now famous um, visits to the tomb of Pope Celestine V, Celestino V, one of, in one of which he took the pallium, which is a sign of his apostolic authority, and placed it on the tomb of Pope Celestine, who was the only pope, uh, previous pope who resigned. I remember when that happened. I thought, when did it happen? We have to check. Uh, it's like it happened twice. Yeah. It happened twice. It would have been like. It's, Oh, yeah, 2003 or something, yeah. But he'd made two visits to the tomb of, of Pope Celestine, which is quite unusual. And one, he took his pallium and put it on the tomb. I remember thinking, and I, I, that, that I think he's thinking about resigning. But then when it actually, 
happened, I was actually, I was in a long-term healthcare facility north of Dublin, a beautiful day of prayer and believe it or not, Eucharistic adoration for people with brain injury. I was preparing to expose the Blessed Sacrament, pray with these people in their hospital beds in front of the Lord. And a nurse kind of rushes in and says, the Pope has resigned. And I was like, this is amazing. I mean, I, and I remember calling the nunciature here on the phone and saying, what is going on? And they basically at that point were saying, we have no idea. And it took some hours for everything to, to be, to, 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 uh, how should they, to be verified. So I was kind of shocked, but I wasn't completely surprised. I was shocked when it, when it actually happened. Do you think, why do you think he did it? <clears throat> I think he realized uh, and, and believed that in a, in a media age in which we now live, um, a pope um, who needs to be vigorous and present in a public way uh, in a way which was not necessarily the case before the media age. You, know, you could have had a pope, like I believe Leo XIII, who for, several, for a number of years at the end of his pontificate basically was hardly ever seen because he was very, very ill and infirm. In today's world, that would be extremely difficult for the Catholic Church. Not to say that we, we maybe will have to, we have to face that at some point, but I think Pope, Fra pope Benedict knew that how difficult that would be if a pope were incapacitated, really elderly, um, unable to do the Wednesday audiences, um, and maybe not being visible and, and, and present, it would be somewhat, in his mind, it, it would have been somewhat destabilizing for the church. And I think when he got to be 85, um, perhaps thinking that bishops resign when they're 75, cardinals no longer vote, for the Pope after they're 80, when he got to be 85, he would... How is he now? He's quite well. I saw him in May, um, and uh, I saw him, we had a nice chat. He was outside in the Vatican Gardens praying his rosary, um, and uh, in good spirits, um, rested, and, and quite joyful. Thank you. Thanks, Patsy. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.